The Future of Cities is presented by Katera. This episode is brought to you by Twilio, a leading cloud communications platform. The mission was on location at Twilio's customer and developer conference, Signal. We heard amazing keynotes, including talks from the co-creators of Westworld, the rock band OK Go, and skateboarding legend Tony Hawk. If you weren't able to make it to Signal, we got you covered. You can watch these keynotes and more by visiting the link in the show notes. To learn more about Twilio and how they are changing communications, go to twilio.com. Welcome to the Mission Daily. This week, we are previewing our new podcast, The Future of Cities. In season one of The Future of Cities, we dive deep on subjects affecting how our cities are growing and changing. Each episode includes commentary from industry-leading experts, including city planners, technology innovators, government officials, architects, builders, and more. This week on the Mission Daily, we are running the interviews we did for the Future of Cities in their entirety. Today, we share our interview with Diane Eisner. Diane was the head of growth at Waze and now works at Google as a director at Area 120, where she focuses on the development of urban systems and experimental products. We talked with her about the rise of smart cities, how cities can deal with new technologies, and how to train workers displaced by automation. She also shared why 40% of Los Angeles might need to be completely rebuilt. If you like what you are hearing, please subscribe to The Future of Cities on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Today, we're going to be talking about many things, both digital and physical in The Future of Cities. You have an extensive background in maps, which is exciting. Could you share a little bit about kind of your background and what led you to Google? So I want to say I've always been in love with place. And since about 2004, I've been playing with mapping places that were important to people from a personal perspective. And we used to call it neo-geography. But it's essentially how do you look at the world from the eyes of the inhabitants instead of just looking at borders or boundaries. And so we were mapping everything from local food production to architecture to where people had their first kiss, just you name it. Uh, And so my introduction to mapping was really through a love of place and a love of interaction with place. And then I started the U.S. Office of Waze in 2009, so quite a long time ago now. And actually resigned as CEO and co-founder of my own previous map company to join that crazy team of Israelis back in the day. And it, it was, it's, been a, it's been a blast. I just left two months ago to start this new entity at Google, but it's been an incredible ride. And we'll definitely talk a bunch more about your career at Waze and all the different things you're working on. So what is Area 120? Ah, Area 120 is Google's incubator. So there are a ton of smart people that really have never had a chance to start their own company, a lot of good ideas. And it's a shame when when you have so much talent in one place that they feel they have to leave the company to go start something. And so Google put this very lightweight structure together a couple of years ago. And I feel like it's still a trial in itself. And, and my the first time I heard about it, I was like, well, that's not real entrepreneurship. (laughs) (laughs) And now here I am. And one of the cool things is, you know, I'm a fourth time entrepreneur, I guess. And how great is it to start already being able to tap into great data, great talent, and just kind of get those things out of the way and just really get into building at scale. And so um, it's fun. Yeah. I mean, 
isn't that the crux of it though, right? Like if it if you say, well, this doesn't feel like real entrepreneurship, it's like maybe that's the fallacy. Like maybe that's the thing is like it's every single, you know, every single startup is its own unique little thing. So Exactly. What's the purpose? What are you building it? Why are you building it? And those are the relevant questions. So what is kind of the scope of your responsibilities at Area 120? So each company at, at Area 120 is kind of its own micro startup. And so ours is really focused on urban systems, really looking at places where there are huge inefficiencies in urban infrastructure, particularly around transportation, and seeing where where we can come in and help them run more efficiently. I mean, you've been studying the the future of cities for a while, so you know that by the year 2050, we're going to have to fit another two and a half billion people into the cities and already infrastructure is just crushed as it is. So if we can't even solve our operational problems now, we're going to have a bigger problem then. So really just figuring out how we're going to tackle that. Yeah. And I forget the number off the top of my head, but if you, if you look at just like India alone is adding like 50 million people, I think a month that are coming into housing. Like you're talking about exponential problems. And it's been one of the themes in the future of cities is that like you cannot solve these with incrementalism. Like you can't add 10 units. You need to, you need to be talking about adding a billion. A, yeah, a billion <laughs> units, right? It's, well, it's funny. I mean, we, so we talked to Marty Koistra from um, Seattle King County Housing Consortium. Mm. And he's saying that like everything, not specific to there, but every city in America looks at how do we create Band-Aids for these solutions. And it's like, you look at that and you just say, he's like, we have 154,000 units that we need to add in Seattle King County. Each like average cost of unit is $500,000. Yeah. Look at how big that number is for just one metropolitan area in the US. If you look at the future cities, I think the big difference between a Blade Runner scenario and some kind of utopia scenario is incrementalism versus being able to embrace ex- exponential change technology and culture. Yeah, I, yeah. T- I totally agree. And, and I think that part of the thing that's so fun about this series is that you have to talk to the people that are thinking in, in terms of huge numbers and huge scale. And that's the only way that we're going we're gonna to get there is all of those different technologies moving together to get to the point where we can have that type of scale. And otherwise, I don't know what the, I don't know what the alternative is, but it's not great. Blade Runner. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and this is not to be totally into the exponential technology too, because I mean, I think that that would be a little bit irresponsible. There are tons of projects, for example, being thrown to cities, artificial intelligent this and AI that, machine learning this, and not necessarily with a lot of wise stewardship. So you've got amplification of bias, for example, in some predictive policing applications. You've got privacy and data ownership issues that need to be part of a cultural conversation, not just a decision made by a few people in, in Silicon Valley. So I think it, it really is that combination. We have to think exponentially, but with that, we really have to consider how we're going to be wise stewards and how we start listening to mass amounts of people which we don't currently do. Right? Yeah, and we have to look historically. So when we talked to Laura Tam of Spur, I mean, Spur was started in 1911 after the San Francisco earthquake in 1906, saying, hey, we should probably build a city that does not burn to the ground when there's an earthquake, right? So, I mean, and that's like one micro, that's one city. But when we look at these problems as a moment in time, it's like, yeah, the things that seem like a huge problem right this second are going to be not necessarily problems in the future. And like, if you look at the adoption of technology, New York City really struggled with the adoption of electricity because people (laughs) thought it was too dangerous and it was going to take away jobs from the lamplighters. So like, you have to look at those things as what does this look like, you know, in 2050? 
What's your favorite city? I love cities. So I love Tel Aviv. I love Sao Paulo. I even strangely, which nobody loves, love Riyadh. But let's see. I lived in New York for a long time. I love New York. But I think the one city that I could picture myself living right now is Barcelona. Really? Love that city. It's got this kind of charm and playfulness and, you know, that Mediterranean liveliness. But it's super livable and the people are smart and, and fairly productive. So I love that city. And I would say it vies for favorite city classification for me right now with a city that doesn't yet exist called Neom. And Neom is Saudi Arabia's possible future city, $500 billion megacity, but being crafted to to look at sustainability, to look at cultural development. It's going to have its own legal framework. And it's just, it's going to be beautiful and hopefully will be really um, a spark of inspiration for people living and working. It's going to be an exciting one. Yeah. Can you share more about that? I mean, I fr- and I forget who it was uh, that we interviewed that was talking about the crown princes of Saudi Arabia is talking about, I think, 30 million. Or bring, I think he wants to bring every single person in Saudi Arabia into housing, into like over a, a time horizon, but I hadn't heard about the city. What, what's so? And in, in general, there's a framework from Mohammed bin Salman called Vision 2030, and it's uh, controversial because, in some ways, it can sound like a big marketing campaign for the future of Saudi Arabia. On the other hand, for those of us that like optimistic beacons to look forward to, it's kind of exciting. And so, it's an overall framework which economically is about getting off oil about getting rid of that economic independence on a single industry. But in order to do that, you need to have a more skilled population. You need to have more public services than currently exist. You need to start looking at family as a unit, which might include women and children. And you need to start looking at how to attract foreign investment and how do you get foreigners to want to live there. And all, by the way, at the same time with wanting to protect the parts of your culture, which are beautiful and historic and ancient. So they have a big challenge ahead, but this might be one of those cases where having a single leader, a kind of a top-down structure will definitely help them be more productive. But let's see, jury's still out, but I love the optimism of the vision and the the boldness of the vision. And I think that there are advantages. So one of the things that we talked about with Jed Halbert from the city of Detroit is the idea of like play to your strengths. And I think a lot of times people saw cities that there was, oh, it might be less safe. It might be less, it's, oh, it's too congested or, oh, it's harder to drive. There's not enough parking. We saw those as as bugs and they're actually features. It's like, that's where young people want to go. They don't right. care about any of those things. Those are not things that, that matter to them. And I think that cities in specifically in like the Middle East or areas in Asia or wherever that have thousand year histories, that is so cool. Like yeah. the fact that you can layer on thousands of years of history into those cities is really, really interesting. And when we talk to Stephen Karen and James Timberlake, their fav- both of their favorite cities is Rome because mm. so many of the plans of Rome were achieved over time. Yeah. It was, you know, like the adage, like Rome wasn't built in a day, right? But it's true. And the fact that these type of cities are ever evolving is the fun part. Like exactly. that is the part that's so exciting. Being able to adapt to what people really want and how people really live. Yeah. So what do you think makes a city great? Micro interactions of the people. Not to sound too Jane Jacobs, although I do idolize her. Fostering an environment and then a culture of the citizens where they feel connected to the city and to each other. And these things can manifest themselves in in really tiny ways. You know, the the way that you know the name of the butcher. Uh, Things that we maybe take for granted, but I feel like 
being accountable for your contribution to a place and how positive the small interactions are, I think is really the key. I think that makes a great city. And then, you know, so I guess I'm saying it all starts with the citizenship. And then from a governance perspective, I think great cities are about being able to provide services. They're kind of like platforms to enable, you know, a productive and happy, uh, healthy citizenship. I kind of view it as like the the cheers corollary. It's like where everybody knows your name, right? Yeah. Like yeah. If, if you're in a place where you have a vibrant area where you can go, whether it's, you know, your local bartender, your local butcher or whatever it is, the fact that you know each other and that there is that interconnection, I, I couldn't agree more. What trends are shaping the future of cities that are exciting for you and we could i guess we could start with transportation or we could kind of smart with technological trends but yeah what trends are you excited about i guess let's start with technical trends broadly i love these notions of call it fluid democracy but what's going to happen with blockchain and not i'm not trying to sound like i'm just encouraging the hype of blockchain but it can have a huge impact, not on the currency side, but on the governance. How are lots and lots of people going to be able to have a contribution and a say? And how do you keep that transparent? And how do you hold your government accountable? And how do we store data in a very safe way? I mean, even if you look at Estonia, that you know, you can get your driver's license, you can get your everything, like 95% of, of everything of your gover- governing can be done online or digitally very, very quickly. And, and I think this is this is incredible. Imagine never going in person to the DMV. It's yeah. ridiculous that that still happens. So there's just so much friction. And so I think some of these big technologies can solve problems that we've learned to live with. So blockchainification and decentralization is is one. Another big buzzword, obviously, on the AI side, you know, the complexity that you need to deal with when you need to add another 10 million people to your city of 10 million people today these are not things that humans can plan for yep. easily, particularly at the speed at which they're coming from. So how quickly can we learn, train models, teach them what people need, but then how are we making sure that we're truly committed to to being transparent about what's in those models and getting, again, citizens involved in the conversation? I would say, I guess you probably want to hear about self-driving cars and VTOLs and all that too. I'm super excited about how streets change when we have self-driving cars. Now, again, if we looked incrementally at self-driving cars, that would look like everyone has their own self-driving car and traffic increases because you don't mind you're getting your nails done and you'll sit in traffic for another hour. If we think exponentially, no more individual cars. You have to be in a carpool. You have to be using services that make sense for everybody and actually get cars off the road. And so it's not really a question of technology. It's a question of governance. Again, policy. Who's going to actually stand up and take the political risk to say, nope, you can't do it. So there are small small cities that are against in Belgium has just transformed their entire downtown core into pedestrian only. So that those kind of things are happening. But yeah, how we how we adjust to it and how we get beyond the rhetoric of they're trying to take our cars away to let's talk about this, right? Do you know that you have this much more pollution, this increase of asthma, this loss of time, this loss in GDP? Like, okay, the masses are smart enough to understand this and we can elevate the conversation a little bit. I totally agree. I mean, we when we talked to Jody Cohen a lift, she was talking about how the average 
cost of ownership of a car is $9,000 a year. I mean, you're talking about a huge percentage of your income that's going towards that, whether you know it's maintenance and it's buying it and leasing and all that other stuff that goes into it. But, and I don't think that it's, nobody's coming for your car tomorrow. Like yeah. that, that's, it's more like when you talk to younger people about, hey, would you rather just get to where you need to go or would you rather own a car? They're like, oh, yeah, I just get... Let's be pragmatic. Here. I just get to yeah. where I need to go. That's <laughs> yeah. great. That's yeah. what I need. Yeah. I don't need the thing. I just need to get where I'm going. And you know, it's the same with space. So the city infrastructure, for example, 14% of Los Angeles is parking. Do you know that? Of the That's entire... Crazy. It's so funny. And then if you put it all together, parking plus roads, plus gas stations, plus the infrastructure, plus uh, big box retail, plus all of these things, it's about 60%. That of a city that wild. we will be able to reimagine. Yep. What would we do with that? But we have to kind of think about it at a systems level, not just in detail. Sorry, 60%, it's 40%. Sorry, flip it around. 40% can be reimagined like today in LA. And so these are the exercises that we'll start going toward now. So there's got to be this kind of retrofitted master planning trend happening. And if you take the streets, for example, without ripping them out and putting parks, which is totally unrealistic, how could we make it so that we were smart enough to know what the citizens want to have happening on a street? So maybe between 6 and 9 a.m., it is only for cars, but then maybe pop-up co-working spaces come after that. Then maybe outdoor fitness classes come after that. Then maybe pop-up bars, restaurants. And, and so we have all of this space. And if we can think about how to use it more efficiently, the same way that we're talking about using vehicles, then I think that's super interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think that the the future will look like everything is seen as multi-use. I think the idea of like you do one thing, it's your one job, that's what you do. This space has one use, it's a bar, that's what you do. I mean, and you see people get creative, like in, I live in Oakland, there's a lot of bar at night, coffee shop in the yeah. day. And it's like, yeah, because it was being wasted for 50% of the time, even more than that. Yeah, You're seeing all of the you know startups that are, that are looking at vacant space all over cities of people's garages or you know places for storage or all sorts of different things where if you're carrying large amounts of inventory, you don't actually have to have a gigantic warehouse. There's places that you could put those sort of things. I think that level of waste, like we just don't see it, but it's all around us all yeah. the time. And that's yeah. part of the thing that's so frustrating is like if we don't know where the waste is happening, then it's hard to actually take action against it. And I mean, okay, another example. So I, I now live in Palo Alto and I've been living here for nine years. And before that, I always lived in cities. But if I think about how it became important to me to have a big kitchen, it became like all this big stuff so that I can host people. Actually, we just need really great public space so we can get back out there and have those interactions. And I'd like to see that as a, as a trend as well, just more public space, different kinds of bars, restaurants, smaller living accommodations. And, and I think that will force us to get out. And it will also help, hopefully, with one of the biggest problems in cities, which is the inequity. And so forcing people out in the streets to interact is always good. Yeah, taking the the fold-up tables and the fold-up chairs yeah. and putting them in the street. like yeah. that. Again, that has been working in Europe for a thousand years. I was just in New Orleans. My friend just became mayor there, Latoya Kentrell. Awesome, awesome mayor. But, you know, everyone out on the streets playing music, selling things, being a part of the street, feeling like it was their own. And I was thinking, wow, 
all of the permit violations I would get if I tried to do this in Palo Alto. Totally. Like, whoa, I couldn't put a table. Actually, I just had a banner up in my house. I won't say what the banner was for, but I got an anonymous letter from my neighbors to take it down. So you know what's really funny? There was recently the whole thing that in the news about someone calling the police on a barbecue in Oakland. So I live two blocks from there to that exact place, right? The unintended consequences of life, right? There is more barbecuing and fun stuff on Lake Merritt now than there ever has been. And I I grew up here, right? (laughs) So now it's like people realize like, oh, wait, I can go do this stuff and it's super fun. And that area is phenomenal now. And like, honestly, it was not that way 10 years ago. I promise you that. And that's the thing. It's like these type of awareness campaigns for the bad parts of that. There's a thousand good things that have come from that. And I think that those type of realizations that the public has of, oh, wait, these can be multi-use. Oh, wait, we can do these sort of things. Oh, and you know what else? It's not scary. Oh, yeah. Right? What is this whole fear thing about keeping in your house and keeping off the streets? Yeah, it's strange days. Let's talk about maps. Oh, I love maps. I do too. I've said on this podcast a few times already. So I have this map of San Francisco from 1846. And I think there's 26 houses and they each have wow. names by the person. And the entire Embarcadero is not there, all of that stuff, because it, it hadn't been created yet. And you just look at this thing. I mean, that wasn't that long ago, right? That every single person in San Francisco had had their own name on the map, right? This idea of maps, I think, is really interesting and in how they've changed. And that at this current moment in time, the maps are still not set, right? Like Waze basically created a business off of a blank slate yeah. and creating Literally. from there. Yeah. Yeah. So talk to me about that kind of idea and and the kind of blank slate of maps and how we've gone from these physical things that you get from AAA that are folded up in the back of your car to something that is now on your mobile device. And then what does that look like going forward? So it's interesting when you talk about blank slate, literally, I don't think most people know this, but at the beginning, Waze was just a blank white screen. And you would drive with this blank white screen open and you would watch yourself drive the roads. The roads would be kind of painted, if you will. And then our early adopters would go to the website and give these roads a name and they would get points for it. And they were kind of like rebuilding their city through through driving. And then once we had road grids, then we started putting these dots like Pac-Man dots and you were this Pac-Man guy. And if you were the first one to trace a road, then we could really validate if you could take a right here or a left here. That made it navigable, this kind of game. And people loved it, but really small audiences, of course. There's not like a mass market for people who want to eat dots on roads. But uh, then after that, we put these road goodies around so that we could understand speeds. So it was about layer upon layer where people engaging with the map and using this information became the thing that was providing more and more live data. So now if I think about a map, I can no longer even imagine a static thing. I consider you know, everything that we know in real time. I consider where should we go right now? It's happening right now. How can we help this? How can we avoid that? And so it's very much something that's gone from static to incredibly dynamic. And, and it's so dynamic and it's so interesting to me because when I grew up, My dad, we got in the car, we turned on 740, you know, AM, and he checked what's the traffic look like. And now like that completely shapes your behavior because every time I get in my car, no matter where I'm going, I plug it into Waze. 
you know, this isn't a, this isn't a plug here, but it's true. Um, <laughs> Happy to hear. Yeah, but I plug it into way. I, I could show you my, I could pull it up right now and show you all of my trips. I check the traffic. Do I need to go across which bridge to get yeah. where I need to go? You need to say, is there an accident? This or, If this I wait 15 minutes, can I save 30 minutes? I mean, just trying to make that information transparent is super hard. But it's super impactful. Yeah. And I, every single day I do this and I think and millions and millions of people do this as well. And like the fact that the route in which you're going to get there now shapes the information that the user has is so much different. Yeah. We know it's predictive now it's not just reactionary and that sort of stuff has like huge ramifications obviously but what did you see as it got to you know almost a decade of this data you're looking at this and saying wow we know lots and lots of stuff now like we know all of these trends we know all of these things we can be so predictive so like what did that kind of look like at that moment in time and then what were you projecting out hey 10 years from now we're gonna have not twice as much data but exponentially more. I think at the early days, we were not thinking like that. We were thinking, I hope somebody uses this. And, <laughs> well, we couldn't even say we were a traffic app, right? Because it, there were hardly any users. And now what we realize is with so many people, we probably have one of the largest databases of traffic that exists in the world. And one thing that we never imagined that we use it for is during Superstorm Sandy, I got a call from the White House and they said there is a power outage, New York, New Jersey, Staten Island, Long Island, there were a few bunch of places. And they said, is there any way that you can reach out to your users? We need to figure out where people can get gas. There's this big fuel crisis because of the power outage. So that was the first time we ever sent a push notification to our users. And we got 10,000 responses over the course of that weekend. And that's what FEMA used to be able to send fuel trucks to make sure that, that everybody could keep going. And that was the first time we did this. And now we work with more than 600 cities around the world to help them use data. No PII, nothing, anon I mean, all anonymized data. But how do you get that into your traffic operations center to do things like improve emergency response times, reduce congestion, improve maintenance workers routes? And they say, 60% of crashes are reported through Waze before 911. That is wild. Insane, right? In the US. That is wild. Crazy. And we never would have imagined that the data would be useful in that way. But that's what really got me excited about all this city stuff was step by step being able to see, whoa, this actually works. This is actually helping. That's nuts. And it's nuts because you think about how much money you save the taxpayer. Yeah. But I mean, like people don't, they don't make those connections, but you think about, Waze can see, or Lyft or Uber, whoever it is, they can see your city's traffic better than the city can see it itself. And like we've, we've said, we've talked to the city officials that have said the exact same sort of thing, right? And the idea that we're giving them a tool that allows not only that city to be better, but the interconnectedness of all of the cities. And that's the big part. If you live in a metropolitan area, it's not just Atlanta. It's everywhere around Atlanta. If you yeah. live in the Bay Area or, you know, wherever it is, or tech, like all the different huge cities in Texas. Or even totally disconnected places like Jakarta and New York can be learning from each other. So this group of 650, they're sharing code on GitHub that like what they're doing with our data. They're really working together as a group to try to turn some of these experiments into best practices because nobody has had access to this data before and they need to very quickly figure out what to do with it. 
And the other part I like is how do you begin to close the loop and take action, right? So cities can see this data, but then it's still very difficult to say, all right, now go send a tow truck or now go do this or someone reports a pothole, now go fill it. And I love to see what I'm seeing now is that cities are really paying much more attention to how do we close that, all right? Our citizens told us that this problem was there. Now it's our responsibility to go fix it. And this loop is really beautiful. Yeah, and and cities are launching applications. I know the city of Detroit. Uh, I know Oakland has done this. There's lots of cities in the U.S. who are launching their own apps so that the citizens can communicate with the city better. But when you look at that, plus the ability to plug yeah. into to other apps, you're seeing that crowdsourced information in a major way. And it's no longer the loudest person gets the pothole filled. Yeah. It's... 700 people have reported this pothole as a problem. We know that there's tons of traffic that goes through this area. This is one of the highest traffic areas. That is the priority. And now that our data is available through Esri as well to all of their city government cu- customers, they're looking at when potholes were filled by demographic region of the city and all of this to make sure, again, transparency around the equity of things being fixed too. So it's all kind of coming together with real practical data. You don't have to have two people on either side saying, well, I think it should be like this. I said, well, no, here's what the data says. Let's talk a little bit about traffic. Average American spends over 3,000 hours of their life in traffic. It's freaking crazy. Unbelievable. It's what a waste. It's the, it's the biggest waste, right? It's our lives that we're wasting. What do you think can be some of the solutions with this? Like what, if you had your magic wand, like how do we, what does this look like 50 years from now? How do we eliminate this stuff? I mean, LA has been dealing with this forever. And, and actually a report just came out that you know, Lyft and, and, and Uber and those things are actually making traffic worse. But that means it's making it worse right this second, potentially, not five years in the future. And I think that there's some amount of, we got to wait and see once this achieves a mass level of scale that is actually going to make a massive difference. What do you kind of see there? And I guess this is kind of the autonomous vehicles as well. But Yeah, but I think most people in the space will tell you that if we don't start charging for road use, you're going to keep traffic. The way that people pay for utilities, the way that they pay for water, sewage, they have to start paying for the roads. There's no way around it. Now, how does that happen? How can that be done in a fair and equitable way? How can you make sure that the poorest people are not being penalized by sitting in traffic the longest? There are levers and variables that we have to play with. But I think that without some form of congestion pricing, some form of road surcharges, it doesn't go away. So we have to do, I mean, that's just step one. It starts working tomorrow as soon as you turn it on. It's going to de-incentivize people. I think that we can also look at using incentives too for how do you get people to understand how they can do better to avoid peak traffic and then figure out how to incentivize them to do that. Uh, combined with all of this uh, VTOLs and and uh, and also to be able to say, okay, this is a pedestrian area. Here, here we go. It's no longer for cars or cars only from six to nine. We have to put constraints on this resource that is tapped. It's a tapped out resource and we have to start treating it like that. Switching gears a little bit towards kind of what what the future looks like and smart cities. How do you see these technologies like working together? You know, we've talked to obviously like Lyft and WeWork. We've talked to various different other types of technologies that are Lyme and last mile problems and all of that. But once we get to the point where 
there's so many different technologies in smart cities. I mean, we talked about kind of like, you know, that 11 star experience of the fact that you could walk out of your door, you're picked up in a car full of a bunch of people. It takes you to the, you know, it takes Seamless. you to, yeah, yeah. It, takes, it takes you to your hospital. You walk right in, go to your appointment, your doctor's waiting for you, all that stuff. It can take you different places. But how does technology enhance real life experiences, which is the thing that we all want, whether that's, you know, surfing or snowboarding, whether that's eating with friends, whether that's going to the park and playing with your dog, whatever that is. Like, how does technology kind of get us out of the technology part? Well, I think you mentioned, you know, the seamless dream. It's funny. I don't think technology does. It's, I think that the culture aspects have to be tackled first. And culturally, we need to to wrestle the technology into being of service to us, of service to humanity, right? And again, what do we want our cities to be? And then we force technology to serve it. I really don't think it's up to technologies to throw themselves out there and decide. I totally agree. That's very well said, not to jump on it, but that's so well said because... I think that this is one of those things like you see, you know, the scooters in the streets that people are like, oh, this, this scooters, this is mayhem, whatever. But it's like, this is the market telling you that they want to use something that's not a vehicle. Yeah. We should listen to that. Yes. We yes, should be like, yes. oh, hey, you know that thing that's super fun that you were a kid that you used to ride around? That thing now has a motor and it can get you from A to B faster. Like we can figure, we can backwards. And you don't need a license. Yeah. yeah. We can backwards plan that into, hey, if this is a preferred thing, like the market is speaking to Let's us. Let's give them a parking lot for them. Yeah. <laughs> How about that brilliant idea? No, totally. And like let's eliminate the other parking lots that take up 10 times more room. So what do you think what do you think the market is going to require? What are we going to like require as we go forward that humans will want out of cities as we start realizing what hey, turns out these are way better with way less cars on the road or hey, it's way better when we have, you know, parks that are or roof gardens or things like that. Yeah. Like what are those kind of things that we're going to be looking to require? I think, first of all, people need to feel like it's of service to them, right? Like, why is the city doing this? Why, you know, those parks they talk about are nowhere near me, right? So I think we have a lot of conversations that people don't feel like they can relate to. And so we need to have some on the ground conversations to, you know, when you're having city council meetings and people are voting, it's the same five people in the room all the time. How are we going to massively scale understanding why people are dissatisfied in a city? We have to get to a service mentality really in our cities. And from a technical perspective, I think the best thing that we could do is have a big giant experimentation framework that really shows people what numbers are changing, right? Is pollution going down? Are jobs going up? What are those things like this experiment with the scooters? What is that actually doing? Let's just show people. Let's just give them the data, but in a way that's super digestible and consider it all to be an experiment. And I also don't think that cities should go out and buy big technologies that that tie them into relationships for 20 years. And totally we have agree. no idea what's going to happen. We need to have flexible interfaces that all of these companies tap into that are really for and from the cities. One of the things that Ryan Popple would, told me, which was mind-blowing, was that it's like number one, diesel buses get four miles to the gallon. Not great. Number two, when you buy a fleet of buses that last for ten years, you're actually buying oil futures because hmm. you're buying. Yeah, you're buying diesel. I love the way he, I love that. I love that he said that. It's totally true. Yeah, I mean, you're looking. You're like, oh, sweet. Now we have to fuel this fleet for the next ten years. Which, by the way, every single second we're losing money instead of building something that's sustainable. He's and a like, good salesman. I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> 
I buy that. I know. <laughs> Me too. I was like, where's can I get an electric bus? That's the way I think looking at that stuff is it, really you start seeing, oh, if a bus can just pull up to the stop and have a light rail touchdown on it and it recharges, gets a little like recharge from the three minutes when people yeah. are coming on and off and that bus never needs to come off yeah. the cycle and it's electric, we're no longer burning barrels of diesel fuel. Like those are those things where painting the picture for people that a diesel bus is a giant barrel of gasoline that is on fire in your front lawn every day, <laughs> all year. Yeah. Like not acceptable. We shouldn't right. be doing that. Yeah. We're, we're, we know. How did you meet Lupe Fiasco? <laughs> That's out of nowhere. Lupe and I are Henry Crown fellows from the Aspen Institute and we were in the same class. So we're in the same exact fellowship cohort and it's a leadership program and they put leaders together from all different walks of life and industries. There was an officer of the Navy SEALs, a, a Tony award-winning Broadway director, just people from across the board. And, and then you're sitting and you're reading Plato and you're discussing it and trying to apply it to your work. And I mean, it puts you in a really weird mindset. But one of the cool things about this fellowship, it's three years, is that you have to create a project. And the project has to take what you're learning and put it into action in a way that is meaningful for some group of people. And so Lupe and I started a small venture fund together that's only in underserved communities. So right now we're in nine neighborhoods and we're funding startups in South LA, Inglewood and Lawndale in Chicago, East New York, Brooklyn, and really trying to work on that equity piece. That's awesome. I, I was, I'm a huge fan, so that's how I, I saw that, and I was like, man, that is just the coolest program, and it's so great. That's where innovation comes from, and it's just really cool. Talk to me about construction materials, and what type of things are you excited about? I was just at the Institute for Advanced Architecture of Catalonia in Barcelona, and, you know, we all know about 3D printing of bricks and construction materials, but they have developed ways to use the local soils and or sands or whatever. And not just that, but they have different algorithms that produce slightly different shapes of the bricks depending on where they sit. Like, is it at the bottom? Is it like a weight-bearing brick? Is it a brick that's really for airflow? What are the functions of each of these within an overall structure? And they have like 16 different algorithms for shape of brick, all using local materials. And I've, I'm super excited about that. That is really cool. Yeah. We're talking a bunch about mass timber and, you know, with, with both Katera and Michael Green and a few other folks. The, the idea that mass timber actually makes the environment better and we're building with something that feels better we have a nice wooden table here yeah. at the studio that our listeners can't see but like it's it this, feels i've been touching it the whole time it I've been feels here. natural and it's like yeah it turns out we have about you know a hundred thousand years of evolution that tells us that this feels right so i think like those type of things of earth materials that can go into building and looking at things exactly like you said that oh it turns out there's so many, there's so much nuance to these things that is really exciting. I yeah. totally agree. The yeah. brick thing I did not know. That's really cool. It's so cool. Yeah. And then they have these little tiny robots that crawl up along the, the, the structures. And some of them are for sanding and some are for polishing and some are for testing. Like these little tiny robots that scale the walls to test them. It's very cool. What about agriculture? 
it's a problem. <laughs> Scaling food in these urban environments so that you don't have to deal with all of the shipping from coast to coast that's going to, you know, hurt that. How do you grow enough to sustain a population? And there's absolutely no way around the fact that we have to grow things in labs, which is kind of the opposite of what I was saying about the natural building materials, because it might seem to some unnatural. But I think that anything that we can go grow in a lab, you know, fake meat, that tastes as close to meat as possible, this impossible burger, and all of this stuff that's happening now, we have to be open to changing our eating habits and what we're eating for sustainability purposes. So yeah. I'm excited about saying that. Um, you, you know you, that you can even grow diamonds in a lab now? I do know. Yeah. I know that very well, actually. Yeah. It's pretty interesting that, quick aside on the diamond thing, because I think that's so fascinating that the diamond industry is like, those aren't real diamonds. And it's like, no, they're literally real. Yeah, It's the yeah, same it's, thing. It's exactly the same. I'm going to get the diamond industry is going to come after me after this. But but no, I mean, it is the same thing. It's not like yeah. they're they're not cubic zirconias. They're actual yeah. real diamonds yeah. that are just grown using the same chemical processes that make diamonds. And here's the thing, you know, so, so many people, like every time you talk about a new technology or requesting a change from a population, they're worried about who's going to be displaced or who's going to be out of work. It'd be really great to see government step up and that's part of the technology adoption plan is what do we do with these workers? I totally agree. How do we upscale? How do we, what are they going to do? And I think that there just needs to be general empathy on both sides of this. And I think that that, that nuance is lost. It's like, yeah. if that was your mother or father or you personally that was losing, you know, if you were the lamplighter yeah. that yeah. made your money lighting lamps back in whatever. Yeah. It doesn't mean keep the lamp lighting industry. It means what are we going to do? Yeah. And there has to be do? a plan for that sort yeah. of stuff. And I, and there there are innovation hubs and things that are working on really tough problems that need lots of human beings. Yeah. And can I talk about fire away. just very briefly? I'm on the board of a trucking company. Well, you said you're, oh, you didn't say this. I knew this, that you grew up from a trucking family, correct? Yeah. 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 But not like a trucking company family, like truck drivers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just in case, because I'm out in Silicon Valley. I don't mean that I come from a trucking empire. So anyway, I'm on the board of this public trucking company called Saya, amazing company. And, you know, truck drivers are the engine for that in entire industry and entire company. And there's a lot of conversation about what happens with self-driving trucks and what are we going to do with the truckers. And I actually got to meet a couple of the drivers. And, you know, the first one I met had just won an award of generating the most sales leads from in-person customer deliveries. Like he's such a personable guy. Like, okay, it's kind of arrogant that we're like, what about the truckers? No, they have all these other skills. Let's figure out what they are. So he's actually out there selling for the company while he's driving. So as a veteran, there's a lot of trucking companies that pursue veterans because they're great for stuff like that because they get the mission done and yeah. are resilient and can deal with those type of environments. But I totally agree. I think it's a bit too... Yeah, I, I think that there is a need to understand that because you are in whatever profession you are, that that means that you cannot be in another profession. I mean, I'm saying I'm mangling this, but the idea is like truck drivers are not just truck drivers. They yeah. can do anything, just like yeah. any human being yeah. could do anything. And the only thing that they can't do is whatever someone that's not them tells them that they should do. That's exactly We need right. to work with them to figure out what's going to there. If yeah. I didn't meet that guy, I wouldn't have thought, oh, truckers to sales people. Like that just wouldn't have been my obvious thing. But yeah, it's a thing. And anyone, so this is a uh, a thing that I, I just personally believe that anyone who transitions from one thing to another 
it's a very strange experience and it's very weird. So it's going to be very weird no matter what mm-hmm. transition you're going through. Yep. And the, the one transition that is very common in America is going from high school to the job market or high school to college and then college to the job market. Mm-hmm. But there's very few transitions that are outside of that. Like you, you just don't, people don't transition careers very often. Yep. I think from the job, the future of jobs and job creation in America, that the people who are going to get it really right are the people who help people transition from, I'm going to be from yeah. an accountant to a salesperson yeah. or a salesperson to whatever, or a, you know, a, a web developer to whatever, like all of the, or truck driver to a web developer, mm-hmm. like those type of like mid-career transitions. I think there's a massive amount of talent that is just waiting to be unleashed. And it's just too hard to conceptually think about the idea that my life is going to change that much. But there's with boot camps and all the sort of things that are out yeah. there, I think that there's millions and millions and millions of jobs of untapped potential that people just don't, they haven't been challenged to say like, I promise you could do this. Yeah. All right. Final piece. We do the lightning round. Oh, geez. Yeah. We got fast and easy questions. Are you ready? Yes. App on your phone that you're using that is the most fun. Oh, Spar. Ooh, I don't know this. You invite a friend to a challenge and you have to do it every day. And if you don't do it, you have to pay money. That's great. Yeah. That is great. Yeah. Well, we need to put that. The last one that we were putting up was flossing while reading poetry. <laughs> Favorite time-saving tool? Ways. I agree. Favorite team, sports or otherwise? Mine. Our team. The Area 120 team. Love it. Favorite podcast? Radio Lab. And then I'm sh- then the mission, of course. But also Radio We Lab. appreciate it. They're older. And wiser. I promise that. <laughs> Favorite recent book? I don't know. Could be Sapiens. Could be Sapiens. But let me just open. You know, I read like two books a week. You read two books a week. Yeah, I'm right. But I also really love literature. I'm reading right now. Then we came to the end by Joshua Ferris. Not favorite, favorite. But yeah, okay. I'm going to go Sapiens then. You and Chad would get along. We have CEO read time where he digests information. Very important. Mm. Favorite one day getaway in the Bay Area. Watercourse way. What is watercourse way? (laughs) People have different views of it, but you literally go and you rent for a couple of hours a room. And in that room, there's a cold pool, a hot pool, a steam room, and you're alone. It's your own room. And it's like 20 bucks an hour. 20? That's it? Yeah. yeah. That is really cool. Where is that? It's in Palo Alto. Okay. Number one thing you are most excited about for the future cities. I'm so tempted to say blockchain, but that's such a cop-out. No, it is. Scaled civic participation. I love it. Yeah. That's it. That's the lightning round. Hey, That's the interview. Any other stuff we missed? I have lightning questions for you. Oh, fire away. Favorite podcast interview that you've done in the last year? Other than this one? Other than this one, of course. Um, Chris Lahane from Airbnb was really fun. Okay, good. I'll have to listen to that one. What's your favorite idea for Future of Cities that you're most excited about? Jeez, putting me on the spot. I got to say it's interconnected. I think that we need to align incentives with people who are working to give them the cheapest way to get around. I think that like we don't even begin to realize the effect that things like bridge tolls and having the bus be expensive Mm -hmm. and having BART be $6, that actually ruins productivity. And it's, it's negatively, like the people are taking the bridge every day they're going to work. We shouldn't penalize them. Yeah. So I think that interconnected free electric buses 
that are sustainable and autonomous. We could have them running all day, every day, limit cars from all those areas, and every single bus stop in the super dense areas would be just killer. That would be, I mean, it, it would be nice. the perfect situation. And then all the like white glove services are perfect for getting anywhere else. Any Thanks. other questions for me? No. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you this so has much. been awesome. We could, I could do this every week. It's so fun. thanks so much for hanging out. Thank you. Thank you to our friends at Katera. The multi-trillion dollar global construction industry is ready for change. Katera's end-to-end team is joining together from different industries to innovate the future of building. Learn how you can join their growing team at katera.com or click the link in our show notes. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.